the story, the drama, the prayer. I don't want camp meeting to end. <laughs> it's been a wonderful month together. Some of you may have gotten an email this week from someone pretending to be me. I hope you didn't. And those of you who did, I hope you didn't respond or give any personal information out. Uh, it came from an email address, either pastordarrenthurber at gmail.com or thurber at gmail.com. And it, I hope you know by now the address that I'm usually sending out to you is dthurber at calamesasda.com. So unless it comes from that, please ignore the message. I hope it wasn't any inconvenience for you, but if it's any consolation, it was also an inconvenience for me. Um, in fact, this is the third time, maybe some of you have been victims of this three different times. This is the third time someone has tried to do this. I don't know how they get your email addresses. I don't think I've been hacked. I've changed my passwords every time, which takes a lot of time. Every different database that I'm connected with that I think might have some of your emails in it, I, I change all those passwords. Um, I don't think I've been hacked because they're creating these new email addresses, and it's pretty easy to just download a picture off of our website of me, and, and they put their, my picture on the message to hopefully give it some credibility to make it look like it's really me asking for some help or some money from you all. But it's not me. I had to spend so much time this week resetting passwords, contacting Google to tell them that this person is scamming or, or impersonating me, and I know it's all things that you have to do, but I have so many messages from the different ones of you that got this email. Hey, was this you? Hey, was this you? And I got to respond, no, it's not me. Please do not respond. And then I got to tell this person, no, it's not me. Please. And those were a lot of different messages to, to reply to, to respond to. And when I got the first text, I think Mark, Pastor Mark, sent me the first text on Monday, early Monday afternoon. Hey, it happened again, and he sent me a screenshot of the email. I thought, Lord, this cannot happen to me again. Not today of all days. You know that my schedule this week is packed. I have so many meetings for so many different things going on this week. And Monday is my day just with you this week to really just do nothing. There's nothing on the agenda except time in prayer and studying and reading the word and getting ready for the, for the sermon this Sabbath. It's got to be a good one, Lord, because it's the last one in, in camp meeting. It's got to, we got to go out with a bang. You know, I, I've got to put myself in a position for, for your Holy Spirit to work. And so if the message is really bad today, <laughs> I'm blaming it on this impersonator, okay? Because he robbed me of my time that I had set, a time with, set aside with the Lord on Monday got interrupted. And it wasn't just that he threw off my schedule, because it wasn't also just Monday. It was other days of the week dealing with this as well. But he kind of threw off my spiritual game as well. Like, I just wasn't in the right mood anymore to study scripture, to try to ask the Holy Spirit to impress upon me what we should talk about this week. You know, I just wasn't in the right frame of mind. I was frustrated, distracted, and frankly, a little frustrated at God. That this happened again, couldn't you have prevented this? And just like that, this kind of, in the grand scheme of things, insignificant occurrence that happened, I lost my spiritual edge. 
These past few weeks, our camp meeting series, we've been talking about how God wants to do greater things through us. One of the most amazing promises in the Bible. That's how we started off our series. Those of you who haven't been with us, in John chapter 14, verse 12, where Jesus says, you're going to do even greater things than me after I go back to my Father through the power of my Holy Spirit. Wow, God, that's a tall order. And we, we've wrestled with that and looked at maybe what that means and how we can position ourselves for God to do greater through us. And I hope that some of you have taken some bold steps this past month towards allowing God to do something greater through you. Maybe it's a process you've started over the past many years, or maybe it's something new that you've committed to. I hope so. In the past few weeks, you've burned your plows. You've allowed God to work with what you have and who you are. You've set aside your pride, taken some dips in your Jordan River, and you've seen God working. But then you may happen upon a moment, like I had this past week, and it seems like your spiritual momentum just gets zapped. You ever had a moment like that? Just kind of throws you off your spiritual game? Yeah? And we don't mean for those moments to happen. In fact, they often sneak up on us, just as we're going throughout our daily lives. In his book, Greater, which I've referenced several times, Pastor Stephen Furtick puts it this way. I wanted to read this. I thought maybe we could find at least one thing in here that all of us could relate to. I have the quote on the screen. He says, Typically, our momentum slips away in the everyday activities on the rugged plains of reality. Somewhere in the busyness of everyday life, in the flurry of activity, we lose our edge. We come to a moment when in the midst of working hard for God and doing what seems right, we realize that something is missing. The moment can come quite unexpectedly. You didn't realize the tank of your passion for God was below empty. You didn't realize your affection for your husband or wife had grown stale or perfunctory. You didn't realize the deep ache to see your friends and family come to life in Christ had waned. You didn't notice that the dream God placed inside you to accomplish great things for his kingdom had grown dangerously distant. You didn't know that a hurtful comment had turned into a root of bitterness in your heart. You didn't know that you were relying too much on old victories. You didn't notice that you had lost your gratitude and started taking the blessings of God for granted. Boy, I've done that. You didn't notice that you had lost your sense of reverence for what really matters. You didn't know that there was no longer any heart behind the things you used to do for God's glory. You didn't decide to become depressed. You didn't mean to start skipping church. You didn't decide to stop speaking words of love and encouragement to your spouse or your kids. It just happened. Anybody relate to that? Something in there. I wish I could tell you, family, that the, the journey to, to greater things with God is, is just like this nonstop, never-ending ascent to fulfillment. No bumps in the road. But it's not. Truth is, it's often filled with setbacks. Boy, you just read scripture for a little bit and you see that the great heroes of faith in the Bible, they experience some major setbacks in their own life. So for our last camp meeting message, if all the things we could go to, all the great things God did through Elisha, if those of you who are just joining us for the first time, we've been in Elisha's life and ministry to look at, looking at how we can position ourselves like he did for God to do greater through us. Of all the things we could focus on in Elisha's life and ministry, 
I wanted us to focus on a part where it shows the reality of the journey to greater things with God, how it includes some setbacks. And rather than get discouraged by it, to be encouraged to work through it, because it's going to happen. And once again, Elisha's ministry gives us help. The story, we really don't need to to read it. It was so beautifully illustrated in the drama today. But we're going to read this short story. It begins as abruptly as it ends, but I think it's packed full of significant wisdom on how we can deal with those times that we lose our edge. After all, it's about a boy who loses his edge, literally. Let's read it. 2 Kings chapter 6, starting in verse 1. 2 Kings chapter 6, starting in verse 1. The company of the prophets said to Elisha, Look, the place where we meet with you is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan where each of us can get a pole, and let us build a place there for us to meet. And he said, Go. Then one of them said, Won't you please come with your servants? I will, Elisha replied. And he went with them. They went to the Jordan and began to cut down trees. As one of them was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. Oh no, my Lord, he cried. It was borrowed. Don't you feel so bad for this young prophet right here? I mean, Jaden, you did an amazing job of just illustrating how he might have been freaking out in this moment. This young prophet, I feel sorry for him because it doesn't seem like he did anything wrong, right? He did, he's just working hard. He's there swinging the axe away. He's doing something that seems to be ordained by God, right? This is a, a project, a noble project. He seemed to be doing exactly what he needed to do. Worst case scenario, maybe he just got careless. I think just even in his brief quotes there, you can sense his distress. And he states the reason for why he's so distressed. The axe head was borrowed. It wasn't his. Maybe it wasn't even his fault. Maybe whoever he borrowed from didn't fasten the axe head on in the right way. There's a lot of speculation that scholars make about what that means, the fact that it's borrowed, the circumstances surrounding that, but we could at least say That word in the Hebrew that is translated as borrowed literally means begged or prayed for. I mean, can't you imagine this young prophet? There's this cool thing that's going to happen. We're going to build like this new seminary for for the young prophets. And I want to be a part of that, but I have nothing to help with the project. And he begs and he prays and he's able to borrow this axe. How precious that must have been to him valuable piece of equipment that took great effort to get, and all of a sudden, he loses it. His cutting edge flies off the handle, sinks in the river. And again, I think, isn't this so typical to how we might lose our edge with God? Usually, we're just doing our thing, swinging away, living life, managing endless to-do lists, being as nice and as helpful as we can to the people we love, but at some point, we look up and we realize this isn't working anymore. I'm swinging away, but my edge is gone. Well, thank goodness Elisha, the prophet, was there. Let's continue reading. Verse 6, the man of God asked, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, Elisha cut a stick and threw it there and made made the iron float. Lift it out, he said. Then the man reached out his hand and took it. 
I just love that this little and seemingly random story is in God's word. Because think about it, Elisha, the man who, through God's power, raised the Shunammite woman's son from the dead, is raising an axe out of the water. This seems a little below his pay grade, right? But as we talked about last week, remember, there's nothing that God calls us to do that is beneath us. And I think the inclusion of this little story in the Word of God gives me encouragement because it shows that God just isn't interested in our epic achievements in life or those life-altering crises, but that He is also superintending our ordinary, everyday affairs. No detail or circumstance in my life or yours falls outside His concern. And again, I think a lot, maybe even most, of our spiritual momentum is gained or lost in those everyday, ordinary moments. That's why I take this simple axe head miracle as more than just a cute children's story. I think that's the last time I've studied this is when I was a kid and it was told to me at a bedtime story. I think it gives us a serious plan as to how we can get our edge back when we sense that we're losing it. And here's step number one that I think the story tells us. Step number one to getting our edge back is the realization that you and I cannot get our edge back. There's any number of things this young prophet could have done, right, to try and find the axe head. I mean, if I was him, I would have immediately grabbed something to maybe fish it out with, some long pole, maybe construct a dam to dry up the river, organize a search party with the other young prophets to help him look for it, anything. But he doesn't do anything like that. He just cries out. It's as if he realized it was beyond his ability to restore that which he had lost. And, and you know, this story, I know that the Jordan River can be murky and it can be deep in some spots. I, it doesn't give details as to where it landed in the river. Maybe it was a hard place to get, but in my mind, it feels like this can involve human effort to get this back, right? Like, it doesn't seem like, if you, if you know where it is, I mean, the prophet asks him, he points out where it is. Can't you just go walk over there, wait in, try to find it? Didn't happen that long ago. But divine intervention still had to happen to retrieve it. The next time you sense yourself getting spiritually dull, don't try to regain your momentum by doubling down on your own self-effort. Cry out to God. I got to tell you, family, when I got a message and then another message and then another message and then another message this week of, from many of you saying, I have just been given this email, is this really from you? I cried out to God. But I must confess, it was not really to ask for his help. I spent a good deal of time pouting first. I have come to realize that pouting is more or less my spiritual gift. I'm really good <laughs> at pouting. So I spent some time pouting. And when that didn't really get me anywhere, I shifted my focus, my attitude, and my prayer. And I started to ask genuinely, God, you've got to help me. I just, I'm at my wit's end with this. I'm not in the right frame of mind. I need your help. I need your peace. I need your presence to get me focused again. What I should have done from the start. And you know what I discovered? 
The more you make an effort to rely on God, the more you realize that you really can rely on God. The situation was still frustrating. Still had a bunch of time it ate up throughout the whole week, but somehow God did it. (laughs) God got me focused again. He helped me maximize a shorter amount of time that I had left. I could not have done it without his divine intervention. You know, the person in the Bible that comes to my mind regarding this principle is David. Man, if there was ever someone in Scripture that I thought had this constant, strong spiritual edge, especially in his younger years. I've been sharing with you over the uh, past month or so that my wife and I have been doing our morning devotions in First and Second Samuel. We're just now getting to the part where the whole Bathsheba incident happened. And, but up to that point, man, David is so faithful, and he's just like, he can't do any wrong, and, and he's just so courageous for God. I mean, he's the one that slayed the giant when Saul asked For those 100 foreskins of Philistine soldiers for a dowry for Michael, David goes out and kills 200, brings 200 back. I'm sorry for you parents who have to explain what that is now to your young kids that were listening. I'll probably have to do the same thing now when I get home. He was this fearless war hero who slayed thousands. Yet we find David constantly crying out to God. He knows that there is no other source that he can rely on but God himself. Just a few excerpts from the Psalms. I'm sure there's many we could bring to mind, but just a few. In Psalms 18.6, In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. In Psalm 61, From the end of the earth, I call to you. When my heart is faint, Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Psalms 86, hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts you. You are my God. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. David understood that what he needed to keep his spiritual edge was beyond his own ability. So he cried out to God, and it made all the difference in his life. The young prophet in the story seems to do the same, and I can't imagine any better first step for you or I to do when we lose our edge with God. But just because the first part of the plan is to cry out to God, rely on his power, realize that we can't get our own edge back, it doesn't mean that there isn't a part that we don't play in the process when it comes to staying spiritually sharp. Notice what Elisha says to the young prophet after he cries out. He says, where did it fall? I love that. You know, there's no doom or gloom from Elisha, no berating his pupil for irresponsibility. He just simply asks, hey, where did it fall? Maybe that's the second step to getting our edge back just spending time reflecting with God on where we got off track, evaluating honestly with him, where did we lose it, God? If you are feeling like you have lost your spiritual edge this morning, let me ask you, where did it fall? Where do you think we lost it? 
Maybe it was a word of criticism that got you off track, a nasty email, a comment you overheard between coworkers at work about you that was hurtful and began to believe the bad things you were hearing about yourself. Maybe you started relying too much on a formulaic approach to God. It became a checklist of activities you had to accomplish every day and every week rather than living in a dynamic relationship with him. Maybe you entered into a bad relationship with some negative people, and now they're sucking the life out of you. Maybe it was because you let apathy settle in and started coasting in your walk with God. Maybe it was something completely out of your control that came out of nowhere, like what happened to me this week, but it just left you reeling, left you feeling like you were in such a rut. Where did you lose it? Where did it fall? You know, God is the master of recovering that which is lost. But I think it's awesome that he invites you and I to cooperate with him as lead members in his search and rescue team. He invites us into the process. So I would say to you and I, if our spiritual edge feels dull or gone, let's evaluate the situation with God. Get real with him about where you might have lost it. And I believe by his grace, he will show us where to pick up and start again. In his book, No Church Left Behind, Pastor Raymond Culpepper shares a moving story about an experience he had with his father. So Raymond Culpepper and his father, his father's name was Frank. A few weeks before his father passed away is when this experience happened. Frank was diagnosed with terminal cancer and had only 30 days to live when this moment started between him and Raymond, his son. I just want to end our our message today with this story. I think it just sums up this whole process so well. Frank was a well-known pastor and speaker, and by this time, his son, Raymond, also had a fruitful ministry as a pastor. After Frank received this news, he asked his son, Raymond, to fulfill one special request for him. He asked Raymond to take him back to Granite Falls, North Carolina, where Frank had first given his heart to the Lord and had preached his first sermon. I think they lived in Atlanta, so it wasn't too far to go. And I'd like to read you the rest of the story in Raymond's words as he tells it. Raymond said, I revered my dad and wanted to grant his final request, but he was gravely ill. His abdominal cavity kept filling with fluid, requiring his doctor to constantly drain it. He was vomiting incessantly. Still, every day he would insist, Raymond, we have to go back to Granite Falls. My father was too weak to get out of his chair or go to the restroom on his own, but he was not going to die without a trip back to that rural church. So two weeks later, my dad just announced to me, because Raymond wouldn't do it, Son, tomorrow we're going to North Carolina. So how do you say no to dad? The next day we left Atlanta and headed for Granite Falls. The journey was a nightmare of medical complications. Every two hours my dad's stomach would fill with fluid and he would become ill. It took us two days to get to that little church from Atlanta. As we walked into the building, dad and I climbed the narrow steps into the small sanctuary. This is the place. Dad announced triumphantly. Then, pointing to a spot on the floor, he exclaimed, Son, that's where your old daddy got saved. Tears streamed down his sunken cheeks. 
recounting his testimony, my frail father began to pray, clap his hands for joy, raise them in worship. I felt like an intruder on a holy moment. He thanked God for salvation, for his wife, his mother, his children, his 34 years in the ministry. He thanked God for his church and God's call on his life. I had never seen my father worship the way he did on that day. I watched the Holy Spirit refresh his frail body with a new strength. Suddenly, Dad stopped praying and took hold of a bottle of anointing oil that was there on the pulpit. I was not prepared for what happened next. Son, he began, I did not ask you to bring me here just for myself. I came to bring you. For the next few minutes, face to face, eye to eye, my dad opened up my heart and revealed its contents. His words burned me. Son, you have lost the edge, he said. You began as a pastor with a big dream, but it has been rough. Your heart is beaten up. You're discouraged. You are busy, but not very effective. You have learned how to act like a preacher, but you're empty. You've lost your burden for lost people. Your prayer life is in, is in trouble. No tears punctuate your sermons anymore. You're not hungry for God like you used to be. You know how to say the right things, push the right buttons, but like Samson, you don't know that the Spirit is gone. The anointing is not fresh. The fire has gone out. You have left your first love. You must get the edge back. Without another word, Dad anointed my head with the oil from the altar and laid his hand on me and prayed. God, forgive my son. He has grown cold. He is trying to do your work in the flesh and has forgotten. It is not by might or by power, but by your spirit. Don't let him waste his precious life or your divine calling by just going through the motions. Revive my boy in the midst of his years. Give him back his edge. Amen. When he was finished, Dad said, promise me. Promise me you'll repent, pray through, and get your heart right. I cannot leave this place today until you promise me. I felt exposed, embarrassed, and convicted. There I was, a husband, a father, a pastor, and leader, being told I had lost my heart for God and his cause. But the truth pierced me. Yes, sir, I said. I promise. And I did. Two weeks later, my dad died. But that day of anointing, conviction, and confession changed my life. Gotta admit, family, that story's in there for me this morning. <laughs> but I hope you can relate to it also. You know, this greater life to which God calls us to, it's not about living a perfect life. There are gonna be times, inevitably, where we lose our edge, where we experience setbacks. It's not about living a perfect life. It's about learning how to rely on the perfect one. So if you are feeling spiritually off course this morning, don't get discouraged. You're in good company. <laughs> don't give up. Cry out to your creator. Reflect honestly with him on, on where you lost it. 
and then empowered by his grace, go back to that place, pick your edge back up, and go off and do the greater things that he longs to do in your life.